Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Psalm 110. We'll pick up 2 Samuel on Sunday, where we left off. Didn't fully complete it. And our norm has been both Thursdays and Sundays plowing through the book. But I wanted to put a little bit more of a devotional bent on this, though I do believe that teaching in 2 Samuel, the life of David, is highly devotional. It's, uh, it's good to be able to look and see what the Lord's heart is for all of us by those who historically and spiritually modeled certain excellencies and also showed us what it was like to be fully human and frail and faulty and how God proved himself as a great redeemer. So, but Psalm 110 right now, let me get there and I'll turn with you. So this is, again is a credit to uh, David specifically, and it's a short one. So that's good. Just depends on how long I choose to make it. But it actually can be divided into three component parts. And since this has been prayed over, we'll just go ahead and indulge right now. And remember that when we left off before, it was the imprecatory psalm. And I think that we titled it on the website as a curse for the cursors. And if you're kind of Midwestern, you'd say a curse for the cussers. But that's where we left off, that there is for those who persist in <clears throat> rejecting God, there will be a curse that they will inherit and in fact own, which is unnecessary because Jesus became the cursed one on the cross. He took the full penalty of the wrath of God upon himself as the Son of God. So even when we look at an imprecatory psalm, which has in it a godly vendetta, a this is what's coming, this is what I'm crying out for, this is what will happen to you, it is in essence a call uh, to repent, to change. So important to understand that. This is a psalm that focuses mostly on what we would consider the offices of the Lord. And that's a good thing. We see him obviously as Jesus, the lowly servant, the faithful shepherd. We've studied him as the rabbi, as the faithful one. Currently in our devotional is the Son of God, without exception and without apology. Closing on the Gospel of John actually very soon. So when we look at Psalm 110, one of the things that comes to mind very quickly is that he is being pronounced by King David as king. King David is pronouncing prophetically King Jesus. Jesus would challenge the Pharisees, and we looked at that in an earlier couple of chapters in the Gospel of John, 
as they challenged him, how do you declare yourself to be God? And he would quote David in terms of, and has he not said that you are God's? If David prophetically was able to say that about you, then who are you to challenge me with what it is, in fact, my works have proven? What have your works proven? Their works had proven nothing except contempt for God. So this is where we find one of those critical passages that Jesus would relate to that is prophetic as far as King David voices it. The Lord said to my Lord, verse 1, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And that is the reference point that Jesus used to address the Pharisees. Why do you challenge me if, in fact, you can be challenged in what David himself penned? The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. It's a very poetic and beautiful picture that's being spoken of there, meaning that the Lord's kingdom will be not by those who are forced, nor are they ones who will only work if they are paid. Their heart beats to serve as volunteers. That is what any employer would go, really? That's awesome that you would do that. But the Lord's the only one that's been able to achieve that. How does he do it? Because there's something deeply beautiful covenantial, expressive, that the Spirit chooses to do in exercising the humanity of an individual who has become highly spiritual. All of a sudden, with simply the beat of a heart, the vision that's been cast, a request that's been made, volunteers spring up all over the place. And even when you do not see them spring up, they have attended to even the very thought that God put on their mind to do. So it extraordinarily is what the church is equipped with, are those who, a part of God's kingdom, serve him as though they were paid. And something would say as well, they are. There's rewards that inevitably are given and marked for the servants of the Most High God. Even though we're volunteers, God keeps truly a list of all of those things that touch his heart. Not like Santa Claus, because Santa Claus, as you know, is also prepared to put coal in the stocking as some would say, is illustrated. God's desire is to bless. Isaiah declares that he actually waits to bless us. He's excited to do that for the critical moment in which the blessing 
that he renders to you will be most exquisitely presented and appreciated deeply. And so it's one of the things that is evidence of a very healthy church is everybody's behaving as though they're on payroll, but what they are doing is responding to God on the roll call. As if they were on the payroll, but they are responding to God knowing that they are on the roll call. Their names have been written in the book of life. Their joy is coming into agreement with what the Spirit of God has gifted them to do. Every single one of you here has been used by God as volunteers in the day of the king's power. Some may say, are you the king? Not at all. I'm an underling. I'm one that has a role, teacher. Some would say shepherd. Others would simply say servant. We all fill roles here. But the most important thing that we've ever been able to fill is the roll call, that we're signed up. We know where we're going. And though we don't necessarily know the turn of events per se, even in what is the inevitable election cycle, we get to come to God as his faithful servants. We get to say, by virtue of knowing where we are on the roll call, Lord, <laughs> I easily find my heart troubled, but you are one that comforts me when it is discomforted. And in where I'm at right now, my mind, in where I'm at right now, in my heart, in where even you've seen me in my body, just exhausted, fatigued, because of perhaps the weight of a world that wearies me. I come to you on the promises that you've given and in my absolute belief that from the day that I entered into saving faith, you have been faithful. In your faithfulness, Lord, as I am a volunteer and I'm on the roll call, I call out to you. And see, that's one of the extraordinary things is that we have an attentive king, not one who dismisses us because we didn't follow the protocols, but actually one who is attentive to us and tends to each one of us according to our needs. And we as a church have great need to ask the Lord as members of his kingdom. Lord, your kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Mystery, perhaps, but maybe not so difficult if we are able to agree that that's an awesome thing to consider, a future with him and a hope that's not too far away, but a present tense work that must be completed. So I know that everybody's saying, we need a new king in this land. But I would say as a pastor, we have a king in this land. We have a king that presides over the entire universe. We just need him and those who are willing to respond to him. No matter what a title a person may have, 
they are subordinate to the one that we read about in the Psalms and who are we are studying in the Gospels. No doubt about it. So where others may be fighting for a chance to put on big britches, God put himself on a cross and did a big thing. He died for every person. But we need to also understand, even as I'm trying to articulate, he is a king who has a bride, and he loves her, and we are that bride. Harder for men to fully appreciate that, but it nevertheless is from his perspective a bride that he has betrothed, and he's coming for her. She has nothing else to prove. Christy didn't have to make me a meatloaf. She didn't have to bake a cake for me. She had nothing to do except come into agreement that she would love me and marry me. That's all it took. The meatloaf and the cake and the vegetables came later. And she does really good with those things. But that being said is that we have a king. David is writing about such a king. And he was in love with his king. David as a king was truly in love with the king of kings. Oh, we saw where his heart went when it drifted at times into additional loves. Jesus would address that to the church in Ephesus regarding but you've left, your first, you've left me your first love. Jesus was able to say that. But he has not left us, his dearly beloved. Isn't that cool? He can rightly say to that church, and that church still in some form or another is a part of the community of churches. It both speaks of time periods in which churches drifted and their personalities became evident to God. It can also speak about our own hearts. But though we, or some expressions of his church, left their first love him, he never has left his first love, which is us. That's what makes him an extraordinary king. Because remember that when there was a king in the day of Esther, that king was disappointed with his queen, and so she was removed from being queenie. And Esther, for such a time as that, was raised up. We know what the picture represented, but that was a fickle king, not a faithful king. We have belief that he was faithful to Esther, but we also know that kings in those times multiplied wives. Our Lord does not multiply his wife or bride. We're his exclusively. Isn't it interesting how our king never promotes himself to such a degree that any of us feel less than his beloved? Think about that. His eye is upon us. He touches our heart. He can love us like no one else can, be it man or woman, and yet he does not provoke with any of us a jealousy in which we feel less loved by God. 
And no one can do that. It can't be done by husbands and wives. It can't be done by mothers and fathers. There's always the tendency for a provocation of jealousy. But God loves us in such a way it's so deep that none can argue that they are not loved by God, that they're not the favored one of God. We could all wear a shirt with the phrase, I'm God's favorite. And you know what? We could look at it and go, you are. I believe that to be true. What's yours say? You're God. You are. I believe that to be true. The beloved of the Lord. You are. I am. No, you are. No, you are. We are. We're beloved of God's heart. And there's no one else that can do that. There's none that has ever done it except God. So he touches our hearts to where we have no provocation of jealousy. We fall deeply in love with him. And then those things which he has given us to do, we do. As what? Volunteers, not on the payroll, but on the roll call. Pretty awesome. That's what verses basically one through three give us an idea of. The second area that is pointed out begins in verse 4 and actually concludes there. It says this, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Kings could not be priests and priests could not be kings. One could be a king and a prophet, but you could not be a king, priest, and prophet. There's only one that ever filled that billet. And the order of Melchizedek brings us back to Abraham when after the war of kings, he triumphed. He was outnumbered significantly. God being with him, he triumphed over evil kings, a confederacy that reared up. He took back a family member, Lot, who had been kidnapped. And that shows you what God does. He goes after those that the enemy kidnaps and he brings them back to himself without loss. Opportunity after opportunity after rescue after opportunity. But it was in this event that there was one who met him whose name was Melchizedek. He was Prince of Salem. He was a Christophany, a picture and I believe that though some theologians argue that he was an extraordinary man, but not necessarily a Christophanian appearance of Jesus, I tend to favor that he was. Jesus made appearances before we knew him as the Lord. He was mingling among men. He was the Lord God who made the connection from heaven to earth in that mysterious inarguable way that he would do. But that being said is that Melchizedek offered the elements of communion. And then he gave a promise to Abraham. And so everything about his role, everything about him meeting with Abraham on that day and what Abraham would say to him and as well, what Abraham would not do 
with regard to the king of Sodom who was left. And he's a picture of Satan wanting to take some of us, just the ones that are, you know, not essential to you, just the non-essentials. Let me have them. Let me reward them with what I have. And Abraham said, I'm not interested in anything that you could give me and all that I would permit you to give would be only that, which is as right now I observe a necessity to some of my servants. Because God could give anything to anyone and he could snatch it out of the wicked hands of Satan and the world system and convert it to something altogether fruitful and productive for us. God's a renovator. He does that all the time. He does it all the time. There was a time when music was considered in how it was being expressed, songs of the devil. But the Lord was renovating the hearts of those who were singing carnal songs. And he turned those melodies into divine poetry because he renovated the heart of the songwriter, of the singer. We have fantastic Christian songs. You heard four of them tonight. What the world doesn't know is actually God gave all songs to himself through men and men and women not having a connection with him nor wanting to connect to him simply penned what their carnal minds were set on. But I will tell you that for every set of lyrics that is carnally minded, God makes adjustments with vowels and consonants and phrases, and he renovates those works. He can convert any work because he's a priest. He knows the language of the priesthood. And so verse 4 simply confirms that our Lord, as king, is also priest. He satisfies and fulfills both of those offices perfectly. He's not one that gets confused on his daily itinerary. Okay, what is he going to my king today, ruling in such and such a matter, or am I praying today? Which do I do? What do I do? I'm so confused at what I have to do. That's us, right? That's not God. Perfect is king. Perfect is priest. Laid out here by David, who was not. Remember, he was not a priest, but he was highly spiritual. He was a prophet, and he was a king. Really important to know. And it closes in verse 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brooks by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. So that's warrior language. David basically closes out this psalms, identifying him in a way that we talked, I think, over in Psalm 108. It was the Prince Valiant theme. He is a warrior. He fights for himself, and he fights for his land, his chosen people, and he fights for his bride. 
He doesn't run away from anything. And he's a perfect strategist. And everything in this does speak of warfare and ultimately the consequence of warring with God. One thing that we've learned in the campaigns of wars is there's a way to win it and there's a sure way to lose it. And the sure way to lose it is when you don't take ground and when you do not take counsel from strategists who understand an enemy. God understands his enemy. The enemy doesn't understand God. So we have the advantage in all these things. A king sovereign over all the earth who is merciful and gracious in his administration. A priest who is consummate in his prayers. He is deep in his intercessions. He is powerful in being able to proclaim healing upon those who are infirm. The priesthood actually was purposed to be the medicine of the infirmed. They were the doctors. They were the ones that would be able to assess a particular malady, to be able to anoint and pray over individuals that came to them to be touched by God. That's why you see all of the incredible, miraculous healings that Jesus did. There was none other that could do what he did. It validated everything that he proclaimed himself to be. And so as Melchizedek was one that served the elements of communion to Abraham and one who was able to speak prophetically and prayerfully over the life of Abraham, whom we to this day are the beneficiaries of, he now says, but don't forget, as I am king and as I am a priest, I am also a warrior, mighty to save. And I can save any man, woman, and child from anything. And I can. Some may ask, well, then why are so many then unsaved? Well, we don't know what that entirely means. We don't know what that entirely means when seemingly the enemy has had a victory over the life of a soul. That's in God's hands. That's where we have to step back and say, God has lost no one. We may be in doubt as to what that means, but God has lost no person. Then in what we would call election, and in what we would call free will of that person, he's lost none that were not given opportunity. And so even in that, we need to be able to say in this year that God loses none based on things change. What is the famous passage now? Elections have consequences. Elections can also have great blessings. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I fear the consequence, but I extol the blessings. Elections have blessings. Let's be a church that honors our king, that honors our great high priest, that honors our captain in the faith, as a warrior, strong and mighty, and he doesn't confuse the enemy 
with those whom are truly his army. He doesn't shoot his own. <laughs> he doesn't leave his own. He's the, he's the one that truly knows the stratagem to win for his name's sake. Lord, we ask for your blessings, and as we consider this word, we are mindful, Lord, that it is awesome when we take the heart of the poet, of the man of God, and we're able to assimilate it inspiringly to where we're at. Lord, it was your intention from the beginning to be king over all the universe. You, though, would listen to the heart of people and you would even put up with their rebellion to prove that you are also gracious and letting go. But thank you that as we also looked at this word, you have a big grip and ultimately a sword that will be wielded. For now you've left us with a sword that's powerful, the word of God, by the spirit of God within us. Thank you for that. So as we continue to worship you tonight, we ask for your blessings, Lord, as we just kind of savor this psalm. And in Jesus' name we ask, amen. I am going to do this. John, can you find a basket of communion uh, elements? I think there's a basket over there. That'd be great. And I will need to have, I think, I'm going to try it. Lonnie, can you ask if the band could come on out? But if they can't, just give me another signal sign. And you have your music all lined up? Okay. So as communion's being presented, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, okay? In the songs that remain, probably two at least, maybe three, I would like you to be able to enjoy it as you're led to. It may be a song that touches you. Maybe a song has already been a ministry to your ears and your heart and what has been sung. Lead Me to the Cross is a pretty awesome song. And the reason that I want to do this is this is the, this is the last Thursday before something else will have presented itself as a revelation. I would like to have you pray as a church, volunteers in the day of his power, those who are his bride awaiting that he have his way and powerfully have his way. Lord, show yourself strong. Lord, show yourself as one who desires to touch and heal nations. There is a time in which that decision will not be as easily made because of an enemy that will be indeed occupying the entirety of the world system. But while there's a church and while we have a voice, God listens to us. 
And so this might be a time in which you can say on this Thursday, Oh, Lord, help us on Tuesday. <laughs> this is Thursday. Help us on Tuesday. We need help. Do you remember that there was a cartoon? I think it was Popeye, and there was a cartoon figure there who always looked forward to Tuesdays. It was Wimpy, right? And he loved his hamburgers, true? Okay. So what I'm saying is that we have something better to look forward to than hamburgers. Hamburgers are great, but we have an opportunity to look to the Lord to make himself great again. And yes, there's a slight knit, but he has the opportunity to make himself great again through the church. I would love to see how much more in liberty the church can do in having the voice without the predicament of a persecution in this country. Because we are taking the gospel to all corners of the earth. And the other thing I want you to consider in advance of this, Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. We have been a significant blessing to Israel from the time of them coming in to their land in 1948. And I don't know if you know this, but the stats are saying that there's less and less Jews coming from European countries than ever before. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're staying there and refusing to come. It's mean that they're filling up the land. They're filling up the land in the manner that God said he would call them back to. And that's been done through the proclamation of the gospel, prophetic word given, and also what our country has enabled them to do. So you don't have to apologize. Lord, I claim Genesis 12. I, I want to be blessed. I want this country to be I want this country to be a blessing as you promised you would bless us. And so do pray. Pray for the life of the unborn citizen. They're citizens in many countries, but we can pray, Lord, it's time to change our hearts. And we have a season in which we can ask, Lord, that what has been done maliciously and heartlessly can be changed lawfully. Can be. We don't have to repent of that. You can pray for the church. The church is a beautiful institution and it really is not the lesser of the great institutions in our country. In my opinion, it's the greatest institution of our country. Pray for the church, that we stay true to doctrine, we stay faithful in worship, we see what the Lord wants to do in the time remaining for it to be done.